After peaking two years earlier in 2009 as the world's biggest seller of smartphones and falling just shy of $20 billion in revenues, BlackBerry sales were tumbling. Its stock price was down more than 50%. Rivals Apple and Samsung had moved into the lead with a new generation of smartphones that expanded demand for wireless devices beyond the professional classes to fun-seeking consumers. The once addictive lure of BlackBerry's miniature keyboard and secure email and message services was now being eclipsed by touchscreen iPhones and Androids that put Angry Birds games and YouTube videos into people's palms. Nearly one billion people, a third of the world's population, owned smartphones, devices that hadn't existed a decade earlier. Not since the advent of network television in the late 1940s had a new technology been embraced so quickly by consumers. The race for market dominance was rapid and brutish. A few industry sovereigns, Motorola and Nokia, had already been toppled. Some figured RIM would be the next casualty. So that is from the introduction of Losing the Signal, the untold story behind the extraordinary rise and spectacular fall of BlackBerry by Jackie McNish and Sean Silkoff. As I note above, Research in Motion had been an incredibly successful company, and at its height in 2008, RIM, short for Research in Motion, RIM had a market cap slightly above $80 billion, but at the time of recording this today in May 2023, that market cap has been reduced to just about $2 billion. Now, the story of BlackBerry really revolves around its two co-CEOs, Jim Balsilli and Mike Lazaridis, who are almost these Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak sort of figures. Balsilli is the finance guy. He's in charge of all of the sort of nuts and bolts of the business side of the operation, whereas Lazaridis is the tech guy. And that's his sort of domain. Balsilli, after graduating college, starts working in finance and eventually gets accepted to Harvard Business School and does very well for himself. He has interviews lined up with Goldman Sachs and McKinsey and some of the others sort of traditional, you know, post-Harvard Business School landing spots. But he ends up meeting a gentleman by the name of Rick Brock, who runs a small Canadian company called Sutherland Schultz. And Brock is so impressed by Balsilli that he makes him an offer to come work as an executive for Sutherland Schultz and tells him that Balsilli is going to learn way more about business working hands-on than he ever will by being a trader or some other cog over at Goldman or wherever. Mike Lazaridis, again, is he's the, the innovator. His 
His father is a Greek immigrant. He's a tool and die maker. And from an early age, Lazaridis shows this propensity towards building things and taking things apart. In fact, they know that when he was four years old, Lazaridis made this record player out of Legos that actually managed to work in a limited capacity. At school, he sort of gravitates towards the, towards the same things. He's involved in math and engineering and works in the shop class and tries to take spare computer parts so he can start, try to learn how they work. And he's fixing teachers' broken computers and televisions. And when he goes off to college, he starts working at a computer company and eventually starts his own consulting firm. And he and some friends end up building this customizable advertising display board where the message can be programmed to whatever someone wants it to be. And they think this is going to be like the next big thing in advertising. And they register their company in 1984 as Research in Motion. The display board device that they've made doesn't really have any generalized appeal and doesn't ever sell very well. And by 1989, they're located above a bagel shop somewhere in Canada. And they're just basically doing some odds and ends jobs for some local tech companies. And they get their big break when Rogers Communication asked for their help with a networking device that they've purchased. It's this Mobitex network that they've purchased from Ericsson in order to help optimize communications with their fleet of drivers. But they've purchased this thing and no one really knows how to set it up. And so Lazaridis is able to facilitate this and this is sort of their first endeavor into the wireless industry. Balsili, meanwhile, is still working with Brock at Sutherland Schultz, and Research in Motion actually does some intermittent work with Sutherland Schultz as a supplier. And this foreign company ends up taking over Sutherland Schultz and in looking at who needs to stay and who's expendable, they decide that they really don't need Jim Balsilli. He's not going to fit in their culture and he ends up getting a severance. And it's big enough to acquire and start to run his own company. And Brock suggests that he look at research in motion since he knew as one of their suppliers that they had been struggling financially. And so Balsili goes and he meets with Lazaridis above this bagel shop and he thinks they're all just a bunch of geeks. And Lazaridis thinks that Balsili is a shark and he's not sure how much he can trust him but he also sees that Vasily is very adept in all the areas where Lazaridis is ignorant
all the finance, negotiations, business strategy, all of that stuff, Lazaridis does not have any interest in. And so after some back and forth, Balsili ends up investing in research and motion. I think he takes like a 30% stake in the company. And so RIM starts making these wireless modems for the Mobitex network. But around this time, paging is the, the big thing. Personal digital assistants, the PDAs, are just starting to show up on the scene. They're expensive. They don't work very well. And the data plans are very expensive. And so most people are still just using pagers. There's 40 million pagers in use at this time. And the population of people using pagers is supposed to just grow exponentially from there because no one knows anything else besides pagers. They can't foresee the smartphone sort of revolution around the corner. And so one of the big hangups with pagers is that you've got your message coming in and then you've got to find a phone and then you've got to call somebody. There's no ability to actually respond from the pager itself. There were a few devices at the time that allowed for some canned responses, similar to what the Apple Watch does now, where you can say, you know, thanks, see you later, that sounds good, that sort of thing. And so... Lazaridis remembers this one encounter that he had with a teacher who told him that the next big thing is not computers, but it's going to be the combination of wireless communication and personal computers. And this is a conversation that has stuck out in his mind. It's a defining moment for him. And in 1995, RIM decides that it's going to focus on a messaging device that just does one thing extraordinarily well, and they're going to focus on email. And so their first device is this product they call the Interactive 900, and it's a hockey puck sort of clamshell flip form that has a full keyboard to where someone can actually respond when they get a page. But this device is real bulky and people just don't really like it very much. There's not a huge demand for it. And the carriers, meanwhile, have been investing all this money into expensive networking that nobody's really using. You know, pagers are the thing. And so the carriers are thinking about shutting down this Mobitex network since it's just a money pit. And at this time, all RIM does is supply modems and software for this network. So if it shuts down, that's the end of the company. They're going to be done. And so RIM really goes on the offensive to show that two-way messaging is the future. And they decide that they're going to make a device that people will really want and will justify the continued investment in the data services from these various carriers. They feel that part of the problem was that they had an outside contractor build the first device, that Interactive 900, 
and they're just not happy with how the product turned out. And so they decide to keep production in-house for the next product that they're planning. And this is where a lot of key BlackBerry features appear for the first time. The track wheel on the side, the full keyboard, and they really go above and beyond to pay attention to the form of the device and how they use how the user is going to experience it. And so they angle the keys so that it's easier to type on. They put this metal dome under the keyboard so that you can feel this tactile click when you press the keys rather than just a soft, mushy sort of response that you'd get from like a TV remote. They're really in tune to the experience with the device. They pitch this new, this new unit to Bell South and the executives there are very impressed and they give RIM a $50 million contract and look to expand the network. By 1997, RIM has expenses that are outpacing the revenue and so they end up going public on the Toronto Stock Exchange and raise about $150 million and they have a much greater financial cushion. The carriers, meanwhile, are still viewing this device as a two-way pager. And they look at it as a way of getting a slice of that growing market, which again is $40 million, excuse me, 40 million people at the time and projected to grow towards 80 million, 80 million people in the next several years. Email is becoming more popular at this time but you're restricted to the landline. Wireless access is not a very common thing. You need this special modem to access the wireless networks like the ones that Research in Motion is making at the time. As they're creating this device, they tweak some code a little bit and they start forwarding desktop email to an email that's set up on the handheld device. And they realize that security is going to be a key feature for their messages. But there's also network data limits. And so the Email has to be about one kilobyte in size. Since the carriers aren't really interested in email devices and email services, Lazaridis suggests that they buy airtime from the carriers up front and then sell it to customers as part of a, da a data plan. RIM is looking at being able to charge about $50 per month for their data plan, while pagers on the major networks are costing almost $150 a month. At first, RIM thinks that people are really going to want this device. It's more functional and the data, plans, the, the data plan is going to be cheaper by a significant amount. But the focus groups just hate the device. They say that 
they don't want something that's going to notify them every time they get an email. They don't want to have that sort of level of connection to work. And they view email as a stress. And so RIM tries to market this device as more of a convenience. You check your emails when you have downtime. And when you're sitting at the airport and you've got a flight delay, you can get some work done. That way, when you get where you're going, you don't have to do it then. Or you can reply to professional emails from the golf course and no one's even going to know you're not in the office, that sort of thing. In designing this first device, or second device, Lazaridis is very practical and says that there shouldn't ever need to be a help menu. Everything should just be completely intuitive. They start to implement small touches like the letters automatically capitalizing when you hold down the key so that there's no need to press a shift key and they can just eliminate a shift key. Double spacing will place a period at the end of the last sentence and capitalize the beginning of the next word automatically. When you're going to send an email, you can just start typing someone's name in and if you've got their contact information saved, it's going to try to auto-populate for, for you. Another thing they do is because of the size limit for the emails, they decide not to notify people when an email arrives, but when it's been downloaded fully and is ready to, to view. This sort of reminds me, uh, there was um, an airport in Houston that was undergoing renovation. And one of the main complaints about the airport was that the baggage claim took so long. And so when they were renovating, they decided we're just going to move the baggage claim way to the other end of the airport. So that by the time people walk to where they need to go to get their luggage, it's going to be there already. And people stopped complaining, basically. They didn't know that they were walking a longer distance, but it, it eliminated the problem, basically. Rather than trying to speed up service, they just made people do something for a longer period of time. They've got this device now, and they're ready to take it to market, but they don't have a name for it. And they use a consulting group who advises them that the mention of emails makes people very stressed. And so they're trying to think of calming, sort of soothing words and phrases. Someone writes down strawberry, but they don't really like it. Another person suggests blackberry because it has faster and stronger it has a stronger sort of tone to it with the alliteration, you know, with the double Bs. But everybody at RIM pretty much hates it. They're like, why is it a BlackBerry? Did Mr. BlackBerry make it? Like, it doesn't make sense. And their two big sort of names that they're deciding between internally is Pocketlink and Blade. The blade sort of contingency wants to call it that because it can just slash through your work and make things so much easier for you. But Lazaridis thinks that this is a cold sort of name and it doesn't convey what they want 
to be expressed by this product. Additionally, at the time, I'm not sure if it still is, but Blade.com was a graphic pornography site. And so you, know, you can just sort of imagine this sort of thing happening today and the absolute shitstorm it would cause. But Lazaridis sends out an email to the engineers who are pushing for this Blade name. And he says, go to www.blade.com. And he's sitting around the office and all of a sudden you, ha- you hear all this like, ew, gross, ugh. And that's pretty much the end of Blade. Lazaridis loves the name Blackberry. He thinks it's friendly. And that's ultimately what they end up going with, obviously. In starting to sell the devices, there's a Microsoft and a Lotus conference that are going on in Massachusetts. The two of them are sort of going head to head over their email exchanges at the time. And so RIM sends salespeople to go to the conference and start walking around and just sort of talk to people. And, you know, they make small talk about like, oh, what type, type of pager do you have? And, you know, can your pager send emails? And like, of course it can't. No, no, no pager can do that. And then they pull out their device and they say, well, this BlackBerry actually allows you to send emails. And so there's just huge interest. They leave the conference with all these contacts for people that are high up in companies. And they take this approach of offering their potential customers the ability to try the phone for a month. And they say it's like having someone take a puppy home to their family. Like, good luck getting rid of it, basically. RIM realizes that it's going to be very difficult for them to get wide adoption into businesses by going through the chief information officers and the IT departments who are just going to view this as another device that they're going to have to deal with and it's going to cause problems. But if they can get the CEOs addicted, then they can get the CEOs to dictate terms to the IT departments. And so that's their approach. They start to really hammer the CEOs and drive it from the top down. As the technology advances into the late 1990s, the industry starts to focus on these all-in-one smart devices, but RIM doesn't really get sucked into this frenzy. Lazaridis does not think that smartphones are going to be the future because they have terrible battery life, they use too much bandwidth, and the screens are just no good to accommodate a, a good user experience. By focusing on their core product of email, the biggest problem RIM has by 2001 is meeting demand. They just can't put out enough units. They have another stock offering right before the tech bubble collapse and raise something like $600 million, which is just ideal timing because no one in the tech industry is going to be able to raise capital very easily for the next several years. And so they're well prepared heading into the future. 
as RIM is selling the devices, they're initially doing the sales and the billing, but they've realized that they're not really suited for this. And again, the pager service at this time is like $150 a month, and RIM is charging $50 a month for their service. But of that $50, they're sending $10 of the service fee to the carriers. And so they approach Bell South and offer to make this deal where Bell South is going to take over sales and billing and service. But in exchange, RIM now wants $10 a month. And they say they, they need this ongoing $10 a month so that they can invest in their network and service expenses, etc. And ultimately, Bell South agrees to this, and they're then able to take the fact that, well, Bell South is doing it, and leverage that into deals with the other networks who want to be able to sell this wildly popular BlackBerry device. At this point, the company is doing extremely well, but they really lack a financial plan and cohesive vision. And this gentleman from Motorola, who's heading up their pager business as it gets wound down, is hired over to RIM to help bring some order to the growing operation. His name's Larry Connolly. And he helps to set firm deadlines and get an actual business plan into place and get everyone everyone on the same page in terms of what they're doing. He also serves as sort of a go-between with the finance side with Balsilli and the tech side with Lazaridis. He's able to sort of keep them on the same page. And so we're now in 2001 and of course probably the biggest thing that happens in 2001 is 9-11. And when the World Trade Towers go down, cell service is compromised throughout New York City. And the only people that are able to communicate effectively are people with BlackBerry devices because sending an email takes up very limited spectrum. Whereas everyone that's trying to make phone calls the network just can't support it. And the same holds true in Washington, D.C. when the Pentagon gets hit and everyone's trying to make phone calls at the same time, the network just goes down. But the Congress people that have BlackBerry devices are able to communicate and they end up going to the places they're supposed to go to in terms of like bunkers. And it's just, it greatly facilitates communication during one of the most chaotic days ever. And so after that, the U.S. government buys Blackberries for all of the congressmen. And they have this sort of crypto-berry network. But there's this sense that, you know, if the Blackberry devices are good enough for the U.S. government and Congress, then it has to be good enough for your Fortune 500 company. 
they start to look at making a more sort of consumer-friendly version of the product. The initial BlackBerry is real wide, and it doesn't really look like a phone. It's its own sort of thing. And so they try to focus more on making a phone-looking version of the BlackBerry. And by February 2004, they've now sold a million devices. And nine months after that, they're at two million devices. And six months after that, they're at three million devices. And so this is a quote I'm just going to read from, from the book. In 14 short years, Lazaridis and Valsili had steered rim from the obscurity of a small Ontario city to claim the title as the new kings of technology with an inventive smartphone that was a must-have for status symbol. That was a must-have status symbol for professionals. Through a mix of innovation and brazen tactics, the duo had outsmarted bigger competitors and skated around them and skated around wolfish carriers. Most remarkable of all, the unlikely pairing of the bookish innovator and abrasive business strategist had thrived. Starting in 2001, some problems begin to emerge. And the biggest thing they have to contend with at that point is a lawsuit from what could be argued to be sort of like a patent troll company. There was this gentleman who, I believe it was the late 80s, had been trying to develop some email service for AT&T, similar to what Lazaridis did with the Mobitex network and Rogers. But the product just never really works and nothing really becomes of it. But the business goes into bankruptcy and the CEO of the company who's working on this technology, he ends up being able to leave with the patents and he becomes friendly with a lawyer who, who worked with him at the time. And they're looking to go after anybody that they see as infringing on, on their patents. Meanwhile, RIM is sort of bragging in the papers about how they have this huge lead on email technology and they're going to go after anybody that tries to infringe on their patent and so they become this big target for this company called ntp and they file this patent lawsuit and they want a royalty on all of the blackberries being sold and the trial goes very poorly for for rim lazarides is on the stand and he's not a very good witness he struggles a lot I, I i think of like bill gates um when he's testifying in the antitrust suit just the way that you know he just doesn't look good and it's easy for the jury to not believe what he's saying and they try to set up this demonstration the the research and motion lawyers try to set this thing up where they're trying to show some technology that they had earlier on and try to disprove the fact that like this NTP company was the first people to ever do wireless email. 
and they can't get the presentation to work and the judge thinks that they're trying to pull something over on the court by changing some some files and it looks like they're just up to shenanigans the way that the judge portrays it and he gets really angry at the rim lawyers and everything just goes wrong for them in this trial and at the end the jury deliberates for like a couple of hours and comes out and orders blackberry to pay an almost 10 percent royalty on all of their sales and Lazaridis is besides himself. Balsilli is trying to tell him, like, you know, we're going to get through it. It's, it's going to be okay. And they end up appealing the judgment. And after several more years in court, it ends up being reduced to a $600 million settlement fee. But they're done. And they don't have to pay any royalty. And it's still a time when the company is, is thriving. On January 9th, 2007, Steve Jobs walks out on the theater at Apple and starts to tout how they have three new devices, a new iPod, a new wire, a new internet browsing device, and a phone. And then he pulls out the one device and, you know, introduces everybody to the iPhone, which is revolutionary. If you get a chance to see that initial keynote speech, the way the audience responds when he does things like the pinch and zoom, this is mind-blowing at the time. And as part of Apple entering the wireless the wireless contest, AT&T starts building out their network so that they can support the full functionality of the device. I'll just read this quote as well from the book. Blackberries and other smartphones were dull utilitarian tools meant for corporate types who lacked imagination. The iPhone, with its intelligent design and hypnotic zoom and pinch touch interface, was for everyday people. So Apple, as they tend to do, they shift this whole category from something that's functional to something that's beautiful. And Lazaridis and the other engineers at RIM just do not think that this thing is going to be successful. They don't think that people are going to want this device that has a poor battery. It's a drain on the network. So you have slow speeds. And they just can't see it being successful. But everybody wants it. At this time, RIM is still concerned about spectrum use. And they can't get their heads around the fact that Apple is playing a totally different game now. To compound their problems, a stock option scandal occurs where they had 
backdated options to make them more profitable, essentially, but they didn't report it like they should. The CFO even denies the whole thing completely. And they end up having to restate their financials, their financials from 1999 through 2006. But the stock market doesn't really seem to care too much and the price doesn't really move. But the relationship between Lazaridis and Valsili is starting to become strained. Lazaridis is very stressed from the whole NTP patent lawsuit and he's upset that he's being dragged into the stock options thing because Balsili is the finance guy and Lazaridis just wants to deal with the tech. He's not involved in the finance and he doesn't know why his name's getting dragged into this whole stock options thing, but he is the co-CEO. And Balsili takes this sort of approach of, well, I didn't know I couldn't do that. While all this is going on, Verizon is suffering because the iPhone remains exclusive to AT&T. And so Verizon approaches RIM to come up with an iPhone killer. They want their own device that's going to be just as good as the iPhone. And BlackBerry comes back with the BlackBerry Storm, which is this device with a clickable screen and their whole thing is trying to say that you know the iPhone is unreliable because you get all these autocorrect errors and you know it was humorous for a little a little while you'd see all these crazy things that popped up with autocorrect and then people sort of just got used to typing on it and the autocorrect became better but their whole thing is that we're going to have a clickable screen so you have to really be deliberate about what you what you click their time frame for making a device typically is about 18 months and verizon needs the phone in nine months and so they're already on a tightened schedule as the phone goes through quality control at rim where they shake them and drop them and just put them through other repetitive uses, the phone does not do well. But management comes back and says, well, this is a different sort of phone. You can't, can't do that stuff to, a, to a, you know, a, a phone with a touch screen. And so they go back and they hire a bunch of university students to manually test the phones and click on them with their fingers. But the phones are frequently freezing and they crash and they're just unreliable even though they deal with the physical stress of being pushed multiple times. They even hand out some of the test models to some of their earliest and most loyal customers and they end up getting a bunch of negative feedback from those people as well. But they're already months behind on the product and they need something to give to Verizon because otherwise Verizon may just cancel the order. And they think that it's better to get out a flawed product than no product. Which a lot of companies will take the opposite sort of approach. They wouldn't want their name associated with something subpar. But here, Research in Motion says, let's put out something that's not quite up to our standards. 
when the initial reviews start coming out, they're horrible. The New York Times says that the phone has more bugs than a summer picnic. And internally, the engineers at RIM start referring to it as the shitstorm. So jumping ahead a little bit, come 2009, RIM's able to settle their options backdating accusations. But some of the damage is, is done. Lazaridis and Balsili haven't been able to communicate about any of this because the lawyers told them not to, not to speak to each other. And as this whole thing's unfolding, Lazaridis goes to the regulators and petitions for a lesser penalty because he's not the finance guy. And so he really puts the blame on Balsili, who ends up being the primary target of their investigations. And as this whole thing is settled, Balsili is mad at Lazaridis because he went behind his back and kind of threw Balsili under the bus. Whereas Balsili was more supportive during the NTP trial. And Lazaridis is just upset that he's having to deal with the, the backdating issue on top of all the other stuff that's going on with with the stress with the storm and the patent trial and all that sort of stuff. He, he keeps going back to, this is not my area, and he's finding himself losing interest in the company at this point. And so this other quote, I'll just read it. The three-year investigation into improper stock option grants had driven a wedge between them. The business partners who once finished each other's sentences were now finding it difficult to start conversations. And this is right at the time when the company needs strong management, a strong direction. The relationship between their two co-CEOs is as fractured as it's ever been. Finally, the BlackBerry Storm is released and it becomes its best-selling device. They sell a million phones in two months, but many of these are first-time BlackBerry users. And as they start to use the phone more, they see that it's slow, it freezes, it crashes, the screen just doesn't click the way that it's supposed to, and people really don't like the phone. And customers start returning the phones in mass. Almost all of the first batch of a million phones need to be replaced. And Verizon tells RIM that they're going to foot the bill for it. And it's like $500 million. And Balsili says there's no way they can take a $500 million write-off in one quarter. And they negotiate something. I think they end up paying like $100 million instead. But Verizon is disappointed and they start looking for their next real competitor for the iPhone. Lazaridis is just kind of shocked that people aren't frustrated with the eight-hour battery life on the iPhone and the slower service. 
but they're just not really appreciating the fact that people aren't caring as much about cost and spectrum use and having to charge a battery in the middle of the day. And the company doesn't really know what they should be focused on. Are they high-end or low-end? Are they business or consumer? And they're just sort of left without a clear direction. In 2009, Google's also working on a phone. They had been working on a physical phone, but when the iPhone came out, they abandoned what they were doing and they just realized that the best approach was to offer an operating system that any phone company can can put on their on their phones. And Verizon ends up approaching Google about making a phone for them. And Google ends up collaborating with Motorola and they make this first Android phone, the Droid. And what's interesting is the Droid doesn't really affect iPhone sales. But what it does is it takes a huge share from RIM's portion of the smartphone devices. And so in Q3 of 2009, RIM misses their internal sales estimate by a few thousand units. But by the next quarter, fourth quarter of 2009, they miss by over 600,000 units. Google ends 2010 with the top selling phone worldwide and every phone maker can just take advantage of the Android platform. Another interesting statistic was that in Q3 2009, BlackBerry makes up 96% of Verizon sales, but by just early 2010, their share has been cut down to 40%. And so Lazaridis realizes that he needs a, a new direction. And he thinks he's found the company's salvation when they are able to purchase this software company called QNX. And the software is more advanced than what they're using on the BlackBerry, which is, I think, Java. And Lazaridis thinks that by harnessing the software from QNX that they can put a full computer experience into their smartphones. Right around this time, Larry Connolly, the former Motorola executive who had really helped bring order to RIM, ends up retiring. There's no further upward mobility for him. He's made millions of dollars. He's got grandkids he wants to spend time with. And he leaves on amicable terms. But no one else in the company has the ability to maintain what's left of the relationship between Balsili and Lazaridis. He was their go-between. So as Lazaridis is focusing on new software for the devices. 
Valsili is thinking about ways they can build non-device revenues. Because at this time, the carriers are still having to pay access for RIM's data system. And as their handset sales decline, these carrier fees are representing a larger portion of RIM's revenue, which is not going to be sustainable. They mentioned that if Apple struggles for a little bit with the iPhone, then they can make money off of the content that they provide. The apps, music, movies. Google, meanwhile, makes money off of its incredibly profitable search business, which every Android phone is going to be utilizing as its primary browser and search engine. To make things even worse, Apple and Google are not charging fees to the carriers. In fact, initially, Google is paying 30% of App Store sales to Verizon. Microsoft also makes a change in its exchange servers around this time that makes it easier for Apple and Google to take advantage of push email. RIM is still technically a little bit better. I think they are, they're saying that their email is, is faster and what have you, but for the average person, this change sort of eliminates the one advantage over the push-pull email setup that the Blackberries have in comparison to Apple and Google. The one bright spot that RIM still has at this time is that the developing world can't support iPhones. Their networks are just too primitive and the phones are too expensive as well. Whereas the BlackBerry devices were built on these older networks and they use less data, the batteries are better and they're cheaper. BlackBerry Messenger is another driving factor because it's able to eliminate the SMS fees in some of these countries. But around this time, WhatsApp and WeChat are starting to become prominent. And RIM starts to think that they need to open up their BlackBerry Messenger service to non-BlackBerry devices. But some in the company think that if they do that, then no one's going to have any incentive to buy a BlackBerry handset anymore. The carriers also make something like $100 billion in revenues off of the text and data services and don't want to lose that SMS cash flow. At one point, one of the executives under Balsili talks to him about using BlackBerry Messenger as the base for a new SMS version 2.0, essentially. And their idea is that the carriers can preload BlackBerry Messenger on every phone, the, the Androids, the iPhone, 
and then bundle it as part of the talk and text plans. And if they can do that, then RIM says it can slash its BlackBerry access fees from the $4 a month that it's now at to $1 a month. But they'd also be on essentially every smartphone. And so they'd get a much greater revenue even though they're charging less, essentially. AT&T loves this idea. You know, at this point, BlackBerry Messenger is a much superior texting experience. It's just more than that you can do with it compared to just plain SMS text messaging at this point. And Balzilli thinks that they can make this messaging platform bigger than Facebook, essentially. In 2010, BlackBerry looks to make a tablet that's powered by this new QNX software system that they've purchased. And they're calling their device the Playbook, which is sort of like the iPad minis right now. But of course, Apple beats them to market by releasing the initial iPad in early 2010. And it's just a smashing success. Meanwhile, BlackBerry is struggling to incorporate this new QNX system and their timeframes sort of running out and they don't have enough time to get email under the playbook. And that is their core, core feature of all of their devices is email. That's the thing that they built their first device for and they're putting to market this tablet that can't do email. And so people are really puzzled by this. And they come out with this workaround where you can link the BlackBerry phone and the BlackBerry tablet and the email will transfer off of the phone. You can see it on the tablet at that point. But part of it is that it's just awkward to do and it drains the batteries on both devices. To further complicate things, none of the apps that worked on the phone are now going to work on the tablet because it's a different operating system and developers are limited. And so they're left with this sort of situation where the playbook has no clear market. Is it supposed to be for businesses or is it supposed to be for consumers? And even when they try to develop an ad for it, no one can identify any unique appeal because there really isn't one. This thing has no email, it has no contacts, it has no calendars, it can't connect to printers, and it can't connect to VPNs. And so you can't say that it's a business device when it doesn't do any of these things. It also has none of the content that iPad offers through their app store. So it's not a, really a consumer-oriented device either. Verizon 
notifies BlackBerry that they're going to be building out a 4G network and pitch all the device makers for, for 4G phones to work on the expanded network. And Lazaridis comes to this meeting that they're having and he tells them why 4G is a bad idea and they don't go forward with making a 4G phone. And so I'll read this next section. Without a 4G phone to compete against a new generation of Android phones, RIM's management had to confront a stark truth. For 10 years, RIM had prospered as a smartphone maker by constantly innovating and rolling out enhanced devices, software, and network upgrades. As long as it held the lead with pioneering smartphone technology, RIM prevailed against bigger competitors with deeper pockets and more diversified product portfolios. If Apple or Google stumbled with a product, they could recover with sales from other divisions. In Apple's case, it was computers, iPods, iPads, and online app and music sales. Google had search engine advertising revenues. That wasn't the case in Waterloo. RIM was a one-product company struggling with a damaged brand image and an outdated product. Years of strategic confusion and poor product execution had caught up with the BlackBerry maker. And so I think about Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, when he talks about the different levels of leaders and how level five leaders look at themselves when things go wrong instead of externalizing and blaming others or bad luck or other external factors. Success is the result of good luck and other people, but misfortune is always the response is always the responsibility of the CEO for level five leaders. As things continue to become more difficult for the company, the two CEOs are frequently blaming outside factors. They say that people don't appreciate everything they've accomplished in the past. The critics are too negative. The short sellers are driving down the price. It's everybody else's fault. In one quarterly earnings calls, they said something about bad weather affecting sales. So I'm going to read this next section as well. When a business declines, it begins gradually, almost imperceptibly, until so many failures pile up that the unraveling arrives with unnerving speed. RIM had been in a slow descent ever since the storm debacle in 2008. It waited too long to recognize the need for a new operating system to compete with Apple and Google. And when it finally jumped by acquiring QNX, internal disarray slowed its delivery. So the shareholders are increasingly frustrated and want to see some changes in management but RIM has nobody that they're grooming for succession. So they really have no choice at this point but to stick with Lazaridis and Balsili. But unless Lazaridis and Balsili can produce a huge success with the QNX-based BlackBerry 10, their days are really numbered as CEOs. As all this executive turmoil is playing itself out, RIM suffers its 
largest ever service failure that lasts for days. They go on to post terrible quarterly results and they even have a couple of executives who end up getting arrested for disorderly conduct on an airplane. It's this scandalous sort of story where the two guys get so drunk and combative that they have to be restrained by the flight crew and as they're restrained they start chewing through the restraints and it's just humiliating. And so according to Lazaridis, in December 2011 he meets with Balsili to talk about how the company is being torn apart by their opposing visions and how they're both under increasing public scrutiny and Lazaridis says that he's prepared to resign if Balsili will come with him. Lazaridis goes on to suggest promoting the head of the hardware division to be the new CEO. Balsili describes things differently. He says he's fed up with the constant problems and criticism and that Lazaridis has come to him and told him that BlackBerry 10 is going to be delayed until 2012 now. And so he's just had enough. And Balsili say, says that the suggestion, that it, that it was his suggestion, they resign. As they're scheduled to step down in January 2012, an outside investor, Prem Watsa of Fairfax Financial, who's sort of viewed as a Canadian Warren Buffett, He's taken a 2% stake in the company, seeing it as sort of a value play. And he encourages the two CEOs to buy $50 million in stock when they retire as a sign of ongoing faith in the company. But after some consideration, Balsili decides he's not going to do this. When it comes time for them to actually step down the company issues, a press release praising the two CEOs and talking about how they've decided to promote the head of hardware division based on both of their recommendations. And this does not go over well with shareholders because the board is just rubber stamping the recommendation of the guys that they've been trying to get rid of for a while. And if this new CEO is so talented, why wasn't he doing impressive things in the hardware division, essentially? So as the new CEO takes over, he doesn't think that Balsili's SMS 2.0 is a really feasible idea and says that BlackBerry needs to remain exclusive. He says that, I'm sorry, BlackBerry Messenger needs to remain exclusive to the BlackBerry phones so that it can drive handset sales. And remember his, his former position is you know head of hardware, so he's coming at this from you know a different view than Balsili. Once his project is killed, Balsili resigns from the board and sells all of his shares in the company. Lazaridis, meanwhile, is given this sort of this chairman position. He's the chairman of innovation of the innovation committee and he thinks he's going to be able to sort of walk around and dispense wisdom as this professorial sort of person at the headquarters and where he's used to sort of walking into the labs and just sort of 
making suggestions and seeing what's going on, the new CEO views it as undercutting his his authority, and he tells Lazarides that he's not to do that anymore. Another sort of knife in the back, I guess, um, is that the new CEO decides to go ahead and change the name of the company from Research in Motion to BlackBerry. And a lot of the old-time sort of employees there are very put off by this. And after 15 months as chair of the Innovation Committee, Lazaridis also resigns from the board. And there's this great scene, I'm just going to read it. Shortly after Lazaridis decided to cut his ties to RIM, he drove to a Waterloo electronics store, preparing for what he regarded as an unthinkable future without keyboard blackberries. Lazaridis emptied the store's shelves of blackberries, filling a large box with his purchases. The most frightening thought was that I wouldn't have a blackberry. So as they're sort of rolling out the BlackBerry 10 device, there's some internal discussion and the new CEO says that it should just be a touchscreen and Lazaridis says you have to have a keyboard. There has to be an option for it. The keyboard clientele that we have, that's what they are used to and if you move away from the keyboard, you're going to lose the core customers. And so BlackBerry 10 ends up not being the iPhone Slayer they hoped it was. It also comes out initially without a keyboard, which turns off all their long-term users. And they end up having so many unsold units that they're forced to put the company up for sale. Prem Watsa from the Fairfax Financial, the Canadian Warren Buffett individual, ends up keeping the company alive, but he installs his own CEO who slashes the headcounts, sells real estate, and moves manufacturing of the phones from Waterloo to Foxconn, who's also doing the iPhone manufacturing. And at this point, their market share in the smartphone arena has now dropped to less than 1% of total sales. So they're not even counted when industry analysts talk about how many phones are sold. They just sort of fall in this other category. And so I'll conclude with this last section. I'm just going to read from the book. In the technology sector, failure is often a precondition to future successes while prosperity can be the beginning of the end. If the rise and fall of BlackBerry teaches us anything, it is that the race for innovation has no finish line and that winners and losers can change places in an instant. So again, this is a really wonderful story full of a lot of more detail in the book. If you have any interest in blackberry i think it's it's worth it even just for a nostalgia sort of factor but again losing the signal the untold story behind the extraordinary rise and spectacular fall of blackberry